Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. This is Phil. This week on Weird Studies, J.F. and I are talking to Dr. Kerry O'Brien, a brilliant young musician and scholar of the post-war American avant-garde. I was fortunate enough to work as Kerry's advisor when she was a graduate student at Indiana University, and I got a chance to see her develop ideas on 1960s and 70s experimentalism that change our understanding of what was really at stake in the music of such composers as John Cage and Pauline Oliveris. Oliveris's music and bodywork practices are part of what Carey calls experimentalisms of the self. That is, experimental music whose materials include the bodies and minds of its performers, and the experience of which, likewise, primarily belongs to those performers' body minds. From this point of view, Oliveris's sonic meditations bear more similarities to yoga or meditation than to, say, the violin sonatas of Johannes Brahms. In those violin sonatas, a performer is realizing a composer's musical ideas for the delectation of an audience. In a meditation hall, there are no performers and there is no audience. Concert audiences and meditators alike are having a special experience, but one is a good deal more private, more inner, than the other. In the conversation that follows, you'll hear us talk about how well the label music really fits Oliveris's sonic meditations. But first, I should probably say a little about the sonic meditations. As you'll hear in our conversation, these originated as exercises for an all-woman group that started meeting in the early 1970s. These were as much bodywork exercises as musical ones, focusing on making, imagining, remembering, and listening to sounds. Eventually, these were written down and published as scores for performance. But these are scores without notated pitches and rhythms. Rather, they consist of verbal instructions, like those of Sonic Meditation No. 5, titled Native. Take a walk at night. Walk so silently that the bottom of your feet become ears. Or here's the score to Oliveris's most widely performed piece, The Tuning Meditation, which you can hear a short excerpt of in minute 11 of our conversation. Using any vowel sound, sing a tone that you hear in your imagination. After contributing your tone, listen for someone else's tone and tune to its pitch as exactly as possible. Continue by alternating between singing a tone of your own and tuning to the tone of another voice. Introduce new tones at will and tune to as many different voices as are present. Sing warmly. In her introduction to the published score of the Sonic Meditations, Oliveris emphasizes that such pieces are practice prompts. The idea is to do them with a working group over a long period of time, not for any particular performance, but for the purposes of healing and changing consciousness. She writes, With continuous work, some of the following becomes possible with sonic meditations. Heightened states of awareness or expanded consciousness, 
changes in physiology and psychology from known and unknown tensions to relaxations which gradually become permanent. These changes may represent a tuning of mind and body. The group may develop positive energy which can influence others who are less experienced. Members of the group may achieve greater awareness and sensitivity to each other. Music is a welcome byproduct of this activity. Speaking of which, JF and I started doing weird studies to expand our own consciousnesses, and in hopes that we might expand yours a little as well. And if you find it's working, why not expand it a little more with the weekly writing and audio bonuses we're offering to our Patreon subscribers? Since we launched our Patreon campaign a month ago, we have published a bonus episode adding to our conversation on the film Under the Skin. We've published the audio of a 2015 public forum on JF's book Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice, which is where JF and I first got together. We've published expanded show notes and essays on what JF and I are digging right now. My own contribution being a little essay on cracked-out conspiracy theories pertaining to J.S. Bach's way of tuning his instruments. And we've also published longer essays on blogging, on the possible fairy tale origins of Under the Skin, and on what I like to call the Philosopher's Blues. And that's a lot of stuff for six bucks a month. Three bucks if you're just paying for the writing. And at the end of the day, can you really put a price on expanded consciousness? Some gurus will demand all your worldly possessions. Comparatively speaking, the Weird Studies Patreon is a steal. So do consider signing up. It helps us stay independent and ad-free, and it could help you attain the mystic wisdom of the ages. No warranty expressed or implied. I'm trying to think what a good way to get going is. I mean, one thing you can do, Carrie, uh, for the folks at home, is just to give a little introduction to who Pauline Oliveres is and particularly what the idea is behind her sonic meditations and how those are different from ordinary, I don't know, what people think of as compositions. Yeah. So Pauline Oliveros died a few years ago and she was known for a number of things. One was electronic music pioneer in the 60s. She was, uh, she had access to equipment that a lot of people didn't at the time and, and she made good use of it. But I studied basically what she did right after that, which is in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, that she kind of tired of those types of experiments with electronics and instead moved towards kind of interpersonal meetings with ensemble to practice what she called sonic meditations. And she continued this basically for the rest of her life. It later became what she called deep listening. It became an institute known as the Deep Listening Institute that exists towards this day. She published uh, collections of exercises, both first in the sonic meditations and then later as deep listening exercises, began hosting retreats in a way that, you know, musicians don't really do this. It's more common in uh, meditation yoga communities to host retreats, but these retreats would be three pillars of music that Oliveros would lead up, body work, that they had different guests lead the body work, and then dream work would be kind of the three focuses of deep listening. 
I don't really follow it that far. I was really interested when I studied the sonic meditations in this kind of moment in the late 60s and the early 70s, where there was this kind of omnivorous hunger for many different techniques to explore consciousness, uh, meditation, sound at growth centers. So I studied specifically her time in San Diego where she worked at this growth center called Kairos and developed these exercises. So can you describe what the exercises are exactly, the sonic meditations and what kind of philosophy behind them? Well, so they were published in the early 70s and they were published as text scores, which are basically just often sentences or descriptions or instructions. Maybe the most famous and definitely most synced one is uh, to take a walk at night, uh, walk so silently that your feet become ears. So that's the score, right? That's the idea is that that's the actual score of this piece of a, well, calling it a piece is not accurate, but let's call it a piece. Let's call it a piece. Yeah. It was published as a piece the way that like piano sonatas are published as a piece and that's kind of how it got known as a collection of short little pieces like that. It was published first as 11 or 12 pieces, and then again as 20-something pieces. And then they became these deep listening pieces. And I think because Pauline Oliveros is a composer trained in the Western classical mold, that we turned them into pieces. That's kind of how they're studied. But there was a point, and this is what I was really interested in, that they weren't that. They weren't compositions, they were exercises. The way that like doing downward dog in a yoga class is an exercise. And she would create kind of programs of a series of exercises that she would do with a group, some of which were musical or even sound-based and some of which were not at all. So I got very interested in like the point before they were like kind of reified into what we're comfortable calling musical works or exercises or uh, techniques. So this is kind of interesting that there's a threshold ontological question. It's like, are we even talking about music at all? And this is like a classic thing that comes up. Like if you teach music history in the 20th century, and you'll eventually get to John Cage and you'll talk about like four minutes and 33 seconds, which is a piece that instructs a pianist to remain silent for four minutes and 33 seconds, and that's the piece. The idea is that what you're doing is you're drawing a kind of frame around a certain durational interval, and the interval of four minutes and 33 seconds, and you're saying, in effect, whatever happens within that durational container is the music. The fact that nobody is necessarily intending those particular sounds, like you imagine a concert hall, and people shifting uncomfortably in their chairs, maybe giggling or catcalling or maybe a truck rumbles by and you hear that all of those things are part of the quote unquote piece right and the question you will always get if you're teaching music history especially from undergrads who are you know they they haven't been socialized to the avant-garde we haven't uh, they haven't had a chance to be uh, i don't know shamed <laughs> into making respectful faces around the avant-garde they'll say like okay this isn't music i'm sorry but this isn't music maybe it's theater or maybe it's a gag or concept humor or something but it's not music and that becomes a really interesting question. Does unintended sound that somebody has drawn a frame around, does that count as music? Likewise, 
when you get to composers like Pauli and Oliveris, who are creating kind of bodywork exercises, or we might think of them as meditational exercises. There's something like guided meditation. Okay, so we know what that is. You can buy the Calm app, and it gives you guided meditation, and we know what that is. We don't think that what we hear in a Calm app is the same thing as a theater piece, right? We certainly don't call it a piece of music. And yet, these instructions for what are effectively guided meditations, we have, as you say, reified them. We've sort of concretized them into pieces of music. And already, you know, in talking about what Pauline Oliveris accomplished as a composer, we stumble up against a kind of ontological question of like, yeah, are these pieces? Yeah, there's all these signifiers. 433, especially when it was first performed, people didn't know what to do with it. But now you can buy the score from C.F. Peters and, it, you know, it's on the right. right kind of paper and it has a compositional history and a performance history and all these things accrue. And there is this tipping point where it's a piece. Yeah. There's a metal band that covered them. There's a vi video has got a lot of views on YouTube of this metal band doing 433. <laughs> Duly putting their earplugs in and, you know, counting down and all the rest of it. Yeah. But... With Oliveros, I I don't know this for sure, but I have this hunch that they might never have become pieces. She toured these around uh, a couple different universities before they were published, one of which was Wesleyan University, where Elvin Lussier, a composer, was teaching. And he was then guest editing this magazine source, Music of the Avant-Garde, and requested that she make it into a score. And you can see in her notes around this time, which are very not in the shape of a score, they're more like a journal, uh, then they start to take score form because of this request. But I wonder whether she, they would have just stayed kind of interpersonal exercises in her journal. Right. Just going back to the idea of whether these sorts of avant-garde pieces are, are music or not. Obviously, it's a complicated question and music is a complex concept. Uh, but there are two things about these particular pieces that we should think about. The first one being that they are avant-garde. I mean, I've listened to several of the exercises on YouTube and they sound fantastic. I mean, what I heard was sounded great. I guess a lot of it depends on the room and the moment and the, the musicians, the performers, the participants, the meditators. And then the other point is that this is therapeutic music. I don't know if that's the right word, but the point of the... No, of I the, think that's of the right word, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the goal of the exercises, right? As you, as you describe in your... New Yorker piece on uh, Pauline Oliveris, the goal is to heal. And the whole thing kind of, if I read you correctly, she got the idea or started doing this spontaneously when trying to cope with the horrors of the late 60s, right? The riots and the civil unrest and all, and all that stuff. So can we talk a little bit about that aspect of it, the healing aspect of the pieces? Definitely. I want to just touch on for a second that you heard some or saw some sonic meditations on YouTube. That's really interesting in part, just because I do make this, it's a bit of a joke in that article that if you search for the complete box set of the sonic meditations, you're not going to find it because in a way it's like, it's not for that. It almost doesn't matter what it sounds like because that's not the point it's a totally opposite situation where like, if you go see a symphony, we care what it sounds like. We absolutely care what it sounds like. And we care absolutely not at all what the performers are going through, feeling or how they feel afterwards as audience members. 
with the sonic meditations, like, like I, I actually am curious about the people who posted these things as YouTube videos. It's probably the tuning meditation, which people do a lot as a kind of concert piece now. But yeah, I would just say that the focus is on the person, not on the whatever sound that creates. And, and Oliveris repeatedly would say that like music is a byproduct, not the focus. That's a key point, I think, that the beauty, she talks about beauty at one point in her forward or notes on the on the scores. And she says that beauty is is a byproduct, but it's also the intrinsic power of the of the work for the participants. But uh, it's not about performing for an audience. Yeah, totally. And I saw one video where it was basically a meditation group and someone was just kind of capturing the session on a cell phone. And it was the breathing exercise. I think one of the first ones in the score. And then the other one, I think, was the tuning exercise. And that was actually a chamber ensemble doing it right before a concert. And you're right, it's not about that. And yet, I mean, I was reminded of Ligeti's like atmospheres or <laughs> it was very otherworldly and it transported me. thought it was very interesting music. I would not question for a second its value as music, having listened to it. But yeah, of course, you're making a very key point, which is that these pieces weren't meant to be, um, well, meant, I don't know if that's the right word, but weren't intended primarily as, as performances, right? Well, certainly no audience. Like, basically everyone who's in the room is participating. So even for there to be a separation between like observer and observed would be somewhat unnatural in that situation. Like occurs to me, like if someone made a recording of some yoga session and you heard the breathing in the room, maybe some of like the grunting in the room, the ujjayi kind of like heavy breathing and considered that uh, representative of the experience of the group and it would miss what the participants kind of experienced the thing to be. I often think of actually this Alvin Lussier piece, uh, Music for a Solo Performer, where he hooked himself up to EEG reader and he has percussion instruments nearby him that will resonate sympathetically when he enters that alpha state. So the mm. audience just hears like every so often. And he's sitting on stage, eyes closed, trying to get back in that alpha state, which is considered a kind of relaxed but awake state in a kind of narrow range of brain activity. But the whole drama of the piece is him being like, oh, shit, I just got out of alpha state. Like, oh, get back. (laughs) Uh, Focus, 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 focus. Like, all that drama, which is like the kind of inner mind of a meditator, being Mm -hmm. like, come come back to your breath. Like, oh, no, my mind drifted again. All I think and that, and that classic sort of meditation thing where you're trying for something, but in trying for it, you can't make the thing happen. And so you find yourself caught in these weird involutional loops about like letting go of intention in order to realize an intention. All of these kind of weird processes that happen in the mind of meditators, and presumably something like that is happening in 
Alvin Lucier's mind. None of that is coming through in the, the playback. Totally. So I think it's like a weird piece in this way that he repeatedly put this on stage and let audience members sit there and watch it. Because the relationship between, I think, what he's going through and what they're hearing is just so drastic. And I think similarly with the Sonic Meditations, what each individual experiences while undergoing them versus whatever artifact might result from that is similarly kind of drastic. This is interesting because on the one hand, someone might listen to this and go, well, you know, it's not music things. It's not about the performance. It's not about sharing this aesthetic moment with others. But I was thinking about it, and I think there is a distinction to be made between what Pauline Oliveris was doing with her meditations and what's going on in a classical music situation. But if you think about other forms of music, like rock music, uh, like a Doors concert, I think that the ideal in that cultural setting, that tradition, was always to have a transformative experience for both the performer and the audience. And the performer has the duty almost, if he's not being transformed, to at least act as though he were... (laughs) Right? Like Jim Morrison has to look like he's in a kind of shamanic, ecstatic state. And that's part of the music. We have no reason to believe that he didn't experience that on some level. And then that made me think of kind of tracing this sort of take on music back to its roots and like shamanic ritual and ceremonies where music was innately, intrinsically participatory and also always involved a kind of a healing dimension, right? Do you see those connections? Is that, does that make sense to you? Yeah, definitely. There's two things that occur to me. One is that there was this point in the early 70s when people would ask Oliveros and her group, this ensemble she formed, to do concerts. And she would write back and say, sure, uh, we're going to do these sonic meditations. They work like this. And there's this one letter where someone writes back to her and they say like something along the lines of, you mean to tell me you're going to sit and meditate in front of us (laughs) (laughs) and that we'll pay you for that. She gets the message and writes back and says, you know, yeah, we're not going to see eye to eye on this. We'll cancel this concert. So there is this point where whether or not this would be considered a musical event worthy of an audience, which she kind of was trying to do was thrown into question. So the question about whether this is therapeutic or transformative and how similar that is to other music, the huge difference between this and any other kind of musical performance is that they met weekly for months and every meeting was intended to be different. They did some similar exercises from meeting to meeting as a kind of baseline to compare one moment to the next. But it wasn't necessarily meant to be like, by week six, you will be transformed into whatever. It was more meant to be, take notes every time on yourself, on your dreams, on the session, and you will notice change. Not necessarily like transformative change in pointing up and better, just change. And that's so different from traditional, I mean, in the classical music world where you would rehearse repeatedly with an ensemble in private before you performed in public a kind of finished product. That really, in the early days of the Sonic Meditations, was not the model at all. Like, every day is a performance. 
Yeah, to the question of whether or not that's similar to having a transformative experience communally in a concert on stage, I think it's so different because of this like reiterative model. And it's it's just way more similar to like meditation groups or yoga classes where you're not like practicing for the ultimate like yoga class where you're going to bring an audience and show everybody. <laughs> that's what I was doing when I did yoga. <laughs> <laughs> demonstration yoga it only took me so far and then i was like this is not helping this is not effective yeah. yeah like all the models are totally scrambled at first i think because the model is not musical model it's a kind of spiritual one of the things that this takes us is thinking about what practice means like the practice as such you know musicians talk about practice and yogis and meditators talk about practice but what they mean are slightly different in music for the most part when we say oh yeah i'm practicing there's this idea that it's practicing for a performance or a recording uh, we say practice makes perfect you know the makes perfect part is the idea of the goal the destination you can talk about you know i am practicing this particular piece practicing is uh, transitive in that sense but what a meditator is talking about is intransitive practice. It's just practice. You're not practicing any particular routine or piece. You're not practicing for anything. You're just practicing. So I guess one question would be, are we being misled by the similarity of the word, that it's the same word? And are we actually talking about two different things? Or is there something you think that is in common between the musician's practice and the meditator's practice? I think it depends on the musician. <laughs> yeah. I mean, certainly in Oliveros' model, they were just gathering weekly for no purpose or final product. I actually think rather than being similar to, like you said, kind of rehearsing for a concert or practicing for a recording, a classroom is much more similar where you show up and you practice talking or you practice trying to articulate yourself. You practice reading long, difficult writings and you show up, but no particular class meeting is like your shining performance. You're just practicing together. What's interesting is that after these first few years of Oliveros creating these sonic meditations she started teaching them in class she started a class just called like the meditation project and would gather students together it's when she actually started using eeg2 to see what was happening to participants brains as they did it but i think absolutely like when meditators or yogis talk about their practice they're talking about something totally different than what musicians talk about when they go into the practice room which is private you know mm -hmm. you, you don't want to share it there's all these questions of like quality when you're in the practice room and, oh, yeah. you know, perfection. And so I think it's a totally different thing. And yet I think also it's productive to think of the two as having some deep commonalities. You know, I think there is an idea of practice in a kind of abstract sense or a more abstract sense that can encompass musical practice, meditation practice, athletic practice, practice of cooking, practice of flower arranging, you know, any number of different things. There's a book by Peter Slaughterdeck. I can't remember if we've ever talked about it. You Must Change Your Life. Yep, yep, yeah. 
Yeah, so Sloterdijk has this book called You Must Change Your Life, the title of which comes from a Rilke sonnet. And in that, he is interested in what he calls anthropotechnics. That is to say, technologies of being human, technologies by which human beings become themselves or by which humans make themselves. A word he uses a lot is exercise, right? Uh, right. To, to signify the type of practice he's talking about. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Sloterdijk's definition of practice is any operation that provides or improves the actor's qualification for the next performance of the same operation, whether it is declared as practice or not, which I think is kind of interesting. And so from that point of view, a much more abstract definition than musicians normally think of as a description of what they're doing. It certainly does encompass both what meditators are doing and what musicians are doing. They're trying to improve their qualification for the next performance of the same operation. It doesn't say anything about whether there's a separable art object that can be consumed and repeated. It doesn't say anything about audiences versus performers. It doesn't say anything about whether it is practice for something or simply practice conducted in a kind of autotelic way. And I suppose Slaughterdyke's one of his goals, at any rate, is to sort of dissolve out the category of religion. And he says that there's no such thing as religion. Religion is a sort of a, an invention of recent date. There are only practices or ascetisms. You know, he looks at every religion just basically as being instructions for different anthropotechnics, different practices. And the idea is that you can basically subsume all of the functions of religion into the functions of practice. Like everything that we might say that religion is about. It's about unifying people into, into a congregation or a sangha, you know, some kind of spiritual group. It's about creating a sense of the vertical, a sense of an orientation of the human along a vertical axis, you know, upwards towards some higher truth or some higher meaning or attainment. Basically, the idea is that all of these things are what are achieved through practice. And religion is just a post facto designation that only confuses the issue. I'm not going to get into necessarily the question of whether I think he's right or not. I kind of suspect that he's being you know, a bit reductive. But it's an intriguing thought. And it certainly introduces the possibility that any time you are dealing intensely with practice, you are dealing with something that looks or feels a whole lot like religion I, I, or spirituality. I, I, interestingly, too, just to add a little point there, is that there's been a lot of research in sports and, and the arts about effective practice. Like if you're on a basketball team and your goal is to win games... Nevertheless, I think that a lot of research has shown that if you can turn that form of goal-oriented practice into a more kind of a mind, like, a, what should I say? Autotelic is a good word, actually, and a more autotelic practice that is a little bit more like a med form of meditation, where you're in the moment, you're practicing mindfulness. Where the doing of the thing is its own point. The doing of the thing is its own point. They've shown that, you know, you get results from that. So maybe deep down, there's only Pauline Oliveros' type of practice and all these ideas that kind of swarm around various forms of practice are 
they're just kind of abstractions, just like Slaughterdyke says about religion, the category of religion as opposed to actual religious practice, which is not the same thing. That's an interesting thought. Does that resonate with you, Carrie? Uh, yeah. I'm very interested by that definition of practice, especially that improves your qualification for the next time you do a thing. Yeah. I actually think that wouldn't resonate with the kind of sonic meditation practice in part because improves is already like kind of tainted of a word that like you're getting better at a thing. And I think in this this mode, that's not the point. It's just, you're like showing up, you're, you're there (laughs) repeating. But surely if you're healing, you're improving on some level, right? Yeah. On that day, but who knows what happens the next day that you show up. Right, there's no long-term program here. It's not like do this for six months and then you'll enter nirvana. You'll reach samadhi or something. It's not like totally. That. Not like that. I, I also think just the word qualification it has like a whiff of expertise. <laughs> like, yeah. and I also think that would be counter to the idea that anyone can show up and do this kind of practice. So yeah. both improvement and qualification seem too loaded of 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 gaining. Uh, mind or whatever which is a huge deal in certainly in zen you know in the zen world that i'm most familiar with where the idea of practicing with a an aim for attainment or getting better or improving your qualification or whatever is actually pretty much anathema like if that's what you're doing then in a sense you're not really doing the practice at all yeah which is why the sports article telling you how to uh change your mind in a kind of not gaining mind will actually help you achieve your goals better is actually very confusing. <laughs> yeah, but it, but it's inevitable, I think, because like you look at the whole samurai tradition in Japan, I mean, they had to practice actual zazen meditation, but there was this kind of weirdly paradoxical factor which is that they were doing it in order to cut people's heads off you know like so so like it's just in a way you, you one wonders how realistic it would be to imagine a situation where that sort of thing doesn't creep in and i yeah. think you pointing to the healing rhetoric is where it does creep in right. definitely in like human potential circles period it, just the word growth has that in the a growth center that you're kind of you know, growing eventually. Right. I kind of presented the utopian uh, version of this all, but you can see where even Oliveros is kind of lapsing into uh, a healing growth. So that brings me to a question I have. I'm going to go a little bit back to what we were talking about before, which is the question of whether this practice, let's call it broadly an artistic practice, whether its aesthetic dimension has any value for Pauline Oliveris or someone who is, like, like a, let's say, like a purist practitioner of this thing. Does the aesthetic dimension matter? Like the fact that these people get together and make these sounds and it, it has this effect, like these overtones and these this atmosphere develops. 
What's the place of the aesthetic in Pauline Oliveris's vision of this sort of music? I think definitely within the individual, whatever attention towards aesthetics, and I, she wouldn't use that language. The, the place of attention to whatever is happening is on the body and on the self. Any outside observation of whatever kind of sound is being created is definitely not where anyone's looking for aesthetics. This is interesting. This is super interesting. It's reminding me of our discussion, Phil, about uh, Walter Benjamin's writings. The what was it called? The um, the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, where he makes the argument that there are two forms of value in art. There's ritual value and exhibition value, and he's basically saying that art began as really at the ritual value end of the spectrum to the extent that the first cave painters would create their works in places that were almost inaccessible because the less people saw your work, the more powerful it was, the more it was reserved for the imaginal world or the other world or the world of the gods and or the world of spirits. And that's basically where the art was doing its thing. It was at that level. Right. So it has this very strong individual core because the artist and the spirits are doing this thing girdled in a kind of subjective secret space and then yeah. the art being conserved there maintains its power whereas with mechanical reproduction and it starts way before then but um, in the west what we have is this complete reversal where art loses its ritual value especially at the dawn of the, the industrial age and then becomes all about exhibition value. And then you have the situation with the musician who practices and basically wants to become a machine who just performs the music almost by rote or almost unconsciously or without any type of affective engagement. So that's interesting. So maybe Pauline Oliveras, from that perspective, is trying to retrieve that extreme ritual value that art maybe has lost in our world. Yeah, I think definitely. The other thing that occurs to me is part of this whole practice, I mean, some of it is just absolutely not music. Some of it was body work that she was doing, journaling, like dream journaling. It's just a, a collection of exercises, some of which involved uh, music. It's because she's a composer that we just will say anything she's doing is worthy of our study. <laughs> Um, she did in the early 70s was she started publishing some of her dream journals, some of which is quite private, what would be considered formerly a kind of ritual private experience, but then she exhibited it. And there was this uh, journal called New Muse, a West Coast music journal, and there's this one moment where she poses a number of questions to herself, one of which was like, something like, what's the most transformative artistic expression you've ever participated in? And she responds, this one time I was in my car, I had a really low level of grief, which I paid some attention to. It had been kind of there all day, but I hadn't attended to it. And then all of a sudden I was crying, wailing, sobbing, and I kind of let it run its course. And afterwards my voice had changed. And that's it. Hmm. That really blew my mind. That, like name your most powerful artistic expression. And she pulls something from her journal about crying in her car. I love that. I do too. But, you know, what do you do with that? Well, it, it, it's so multifarious and multifaceted because her choice to share that in that 
interview context in itself becomes a kind of artistic gesture, which is interesting, but that's not the point, right? The point is that uh, can people have artistic experiences by themselves, experiences of real creation? I remember one time I was in a taxi in Toronto and we, I don't know, the taxi turned a corner and I saw this yellow house and the sky was like this deep cerulean blue behind it. And there was a river there or a ravine and all these elements just, it just, it popped at me like a painting, but it had to do with what I was going through at the time. It was all connected. It was like a dream, right? It's funny because <laughs> as you were describing that kind of episode from Pauline Oliveris's life, I was reminded of that time because I would definitely say that that was an artistic experience, even though it didn't result in a performance or a work or anything that could be exhibited except now as I'm describing it. So that's really, really fascinating. Yeah. I, I mean, I think this is something people attribute more to John Cage, this kind of separating art from life. But I think Pauline Oliveros's purpose for doing so is that real harm can be created to your mind and body if you only pay serious attention to art <laughs> and not to mm -hmm. life. Like she was very interested in body work and her teacher, Elaine Summers, taught her kinetic awareness, wrote and talked a lot about the ways that we harm ourselves just but you know the way we sit the way that we walk the kind of postures we live our lives in so failing to attend to the life part of the equation can do real harm which is just unquestionably true yeah yeah i mean in a school of music you see it all the time i mean any number of students probably more than 50 percent of students in a professional school of music, such as the one that employs me, and where you got your doctorate, are walking around with some kind of injury, playing-related injury, or for that matter, some kind of mental, psychological situation that has to do with pressure and stress and tension around their practice. Totally. And Alvaro's wrote quite a bit about the ways that just going to music school forces you to discipline your body in certain ways and the ways that yeah that that leads to injury and neglect of the body one of the reasons i got very interested in this stuff especially the bodywork studies of oliveros is that i just personally interested in bodywork also kind of a student of uh, multiple forms of bodywork but i got into it just because i had some spinal problems and quite a lot of pain and it was partially true for oliveros too she also had back problems but the fact that paying attention to your body can take extreme pain, like that people won't place their attention towards their body or towards, again, kind of the life half of attention, unless there's a fire, like an extremely bad signal coming from your body and not yeah. just like a minor one. If you have a little pain, you can ignore that. Even if you have a little, like kind of medium level of pain, uh, you could probably ignore that too if you have a lot of practicing to do or deadlines coming up if you have some like severe bodily pain that's when the attention can be forced it's like your attention is placed there not by choice and sometimes it seems almost like the body is sort of like i'm over here like waving and you see musicians like athletes will power through an incredible amount of pain it's almost like the body has its own autonomous opinion on how things should be and it and it's like you can ignore it for a while 
But like I was talking to a friend who's talking about a family member of hers who is a very high-end professional and who is one of those people who takes on far too many responsibilities and never takes a day off. And she has these periodic physical breakdowns where suddenly some weird and often undiagnosable thing goes drastically wrong with her body and she ends up in hospital. And it's like kind of a mysterious medical malady and different doctors have looked at her and they have different opinions about what's wrong with her. But my friend was saying basically it's as if her body just gets at a certain point sort of like we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. Yeah. You know, you're not listening to me. Like, I'm tired. I need a rest. And you're not listening. If you continue not to listen, I'm just going to make it so that you have no choice, that you have to take a rest. And you do sort of see that sometimes. The body almost acting autonomously to precipitate crises in order to just get you to do something you should have been doing long ago. It's funny, like you use the phrase just like listening, I think, to your body, which has become a little bit of a cliche, you know, like um, you got to got to listen to your body. But I think that's actually what Oliveris was in part talking about, that her conception of music included that, that yeah. like listening isn't, it's not even an aural phenomenon. It's a attentional one, like right. where you're placing your attention and you can practice that on sound, but you can also practice it on your body. Right. And however good you are at placing your attention will affect both sounding matter and physical and what she'd call spiritual matter. Right. Well, she she makes a distinction between attention and awareness. Like, that's something that runs through a lot of her deep listening writings. Like, she's written a certain amount about this stuff, and there's, like, one or two essays that I think were written for, like, workshops she did that have been published. In any event, she often makes a distinction between awareness and attention, and she'll schematize it with a diagram. You'll see, like, a big circle with a little dot in the middle. In the big circle represents awareness and that's sort of like your all-encompassing awareness like you know I'm sitting in this room and my awareness is such that it can reach out and I can listen to all the sound ambient sounds and I can smell all the little smells of like you know leftover cooking smells or whatever and I can you know feel the soles of my feet and on the clothes of my body and blah 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 like you know awareness is a diffuse all-encompassing thing, whereas attention is very single-pointed, like I'm, I'm paying attention to my words right now, or say I'm practicing piano, I'm paying attention to the particular passage. And she points out how attention and awareness can support one another. And so the reason that she has this diagram of the big circle of awareness and the little dot of attention is that they're both centered to one another, like, you know, like a bullseye. And you know, she wants to suggest that awareness and attention support one another mutually. And she gives us an example in one of these essays. Say you're practicing a passage on the piano and your attention is very, very focused and you're playing the same passage over and over again until you get it just perfect. And meanwhile, while you've been focusing on getting it to sound exactly right, you have a cramp in your hand that's been slowly kind of creeping up. And so your attention has been really focused, but your awareness has been kind of nowhere. Like you haven't been noticing how your body feels. However, if you take a step back and you allow your awareness to kind of fill out. If you pay attention to your awareness. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, 
and pay attention to your attention. You're, you know, you're or aware of your. You can yeah. be aware of your attention. Right. Um, in that way, you can be more accomplished as a player, but also a much healthier player. And I think that there's a lot of wisdom in that. For sure. I mean, I think my big takeaway from that attention awareness writing is that most people live their lives not knowing that they're in one state or the other. You're just kind of being pulled around by stimuli that you're following or or not. And yeah. that there's like a lot of power in being able to choose where yeah. you place your awareness or your attention and knowing that you have a choice. Right. In that, I mean that just applies to everything in your life. I think that's also part of like the political dimension of her work. Yeah, I was going to go there. Yeah. Yeah, go on. Sorry. Yeah, it's in that realm that freedom comes through choice. But the first step is noticing that you have one. And by practicing these exercises, you can like, and this is a kind of gaining mindset, but you can like get good at it. <laughs> you can improve your qualifications. <laughs> connection between that awareness attention and the body it's not just a mental rational thing an intellectual process but it's actually a process that involves the body and that in a sense because it has such huge implications for our lives individually and therefore collectively there's this whole question of attention awareness and body work and all that is extremely political and you, you touch on that in your New Yorker piece. Could you talk a little bit about the political dimension of Pauline Oliveris's work and, and her ideas? Yeah, I mean, so that was written one month after the 2016 election. That kind of slant to the article was inevitable. But I have to say, in writing that article, and I, of course, didn't choose the title, the editor did, but listening as activism the Sonic Meditations of Pauline Oliveros. I didn't choose it. And that was the most objected to part of the article that okay. listening could be a form of political work. Oh, and definitely of activism. I got a lot of just kind of Twitter hate about that. You know, I found that very interesting. And I tried to kind of preempt that objection by, for one thing, saying like this work, this somewhat private work and years of reflection shouldn't be taken as a kind of escapism that affects no one else. At least she considered it uh, that moment where you choose, like where you choose how you're going to act mm -hmm. with the presumption that like, if everyone took a moment to pause before they act and chose consciously rather than reacting kind of instinctively, that would transform <laughs> politics, right. culture, life forever the thing about being able to do that and to be able to pause before acting or notice where your attention is being placed is that you can decide that that's a good thing to do but 
actually living your life that way is a totally different thing. And that's why she's creating, I think, these exercises is to, um, to practice. <laughs> to practice, and she used sound as one way to practice, but that she could use these exercises as a way to inform the way that she acted in the world. Right, was, right. Uh, Expanding consciousness is the term, the phrase she uses, which places her in a very rich tradition of thinking, at least in the modern West, like in the, the whole West Coast. Thing. I'd love to know what Eric Davis thinks about Pauline Oliveras because he's very interested in West Coast, uh, I don't know what you call it, West Coast mysticism, the West Coast occult tradition. And she kind of has an interesting um, She's place definitely in that. part of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Something that does strike me about that kind of vibe, that scene, is that it is so much about the human. You have a line in your New Yorker piece. It's what I take to be kind of the, I don't know, almost the crux of the piece that you wrote, where you talk about this is almost a unique chapter in the history of experimentalism because, as you write, these experiments were not conducted on the music. The music was an experiment on the self. Even framing... The question, as Sloterdijk does, what is practice, might be to miss the point slightly. The, and I'll, I'll just put my cards on the table. The way I like to ask the question is not to ask what is practice, but rather to ask what is it to be a practicing person. So my twist on Sloterdijk's definition of practice is to put it in terms of the practicing person and what I say is the practicing person is one whose life is oriented to the repetition of an activity with a view to its perpetuation, mm. which I do partly because I think that does get that gaining mind problem out of there that, you know, not all practices are done with a view of gain, although some are. But you can say that practice is about its own perpetuation for whatever reason. And what I'm interested in and what I think is something you find in this kind of California scene is an interest in like what happens to the human life that is oriented to an activity that is ever renewed, that is ever perpetuated. In the case, I mean, in this case of these sonic meditation practices, they were one way. Again, I just think that the question is like attention. What happens to the person who does this practice is that their attention is transformed. And then that affects every part of your life, every waking and probably dreaming part of your life, which is why it's so weird to extract the musical part of it. That's right. From what the, I guess you could say, purpose of it is far more global it really would affect everything you do. It's a reminder that you can have art without having art markets and journals of art criticism and institutions of arts learning, like, for example, the Jacob School of Music. You can do away with all of the institutional and discursive structures around art and still have art. But, you know, this is getting back to, you know, what you were talking about, J.F., with Benjamin's, was it exhibition value? Versus ritual value, yeah. You know, you can strip away of the exhibition value, which is what pertains to all of those institutional structures. And what you can still have is a ritual value, which is a sort of like, it doesn't matter what anyone's takeaway is necessarily. 
the figure that we used in that earlier episode of Weird Studies was like the cave painting where, you know, they found cave paintings where some of the most important figures are actually painted in places that are totally inaccessible, where if you're in the cave, you can't possibly see them. And those might be the most important figures. Those might be the most ritually powerful. You know, the idea of art conceived along that model, that it might be something that is just kind of enclosed in a life, not necessarily secret, but not something that is in any way abstractable from the process of living life. You know, we're not talking about objects here. We're talking about processes. And the idea that's like, yeah, but that could still be art. That, I think, is a kind of radical idea at the heart of not just Oliveris, but a lot of the post-cage avant-garde. But I think it's also an idea that is still kind of hard to think after all these years because it's so hard to think like, yeah, but... But where's the CD that I could buy? You know, where's where's the journal article about this? Like the idea of something that just doesn't leave any kind of remainder is just refractory to the modern mind. I would even say, I mean, it's not even a process versus object. It's like object versus attention. So even though you can pay attention to a process, like can you pay attention to someone else's attention? Can you like grab onto that? If the experiment's on the self rather than on the music, you just can't get your hands on that. You definitely can't box set it or sell it. It's actually reminding me of that um, Robert Irwin book. Oh, yeah. Seeing is forgetting the name of the thing one sees. Lawrence Wexler. That's right. Um, He had some beautiful passages describing Irwin's work, but just that the experience of seeing this kind of flicker in the corner of a room like that shiver of perception is, that's it. (laughs) Yeah. But like, you can't share a shiver of perception with somebody else. So like to flip the art object onto a moment in time in which someone was attending to something is I think what's happening in Oliveros' work, but you're, I I agree, like many other artists like Irwin who are interested in perception are trying. The the thing is, everything just falls back into the, like, what's the name of the work? What's the venue? What's the museum holding it? Like, we want to collapse back into those categories, but... Maybe just to to expand on something you said, I wouldn't say it's necessarily just always going to be like a purely inner and private thing, because those shivers can be shared. Like, for example, I'm thinking about this recording right now. You know, we've been talking for a while, and in a few minutes, we're going to say our goodbyes and turn off the recording device and then at a certain point we'll edit this into a show and our listeners will have an opportunity to hear our conversation but in the time that we've been talking even in this mediated form you know we're each in separate corners of North America and each of us are talking into some kind of like electronic device in order to have this conversation but even in this mediated form And I always feel this in classroom teaching. You know, it's always like there's like a little, I visualize it almost as like the little ball in those uh, sing-along shows that they had in the old days, like before I was born, where you see the little ball bouncing on top of the words that you'd sing along with. And, you know, you'd read them on the screen, sing along with Mitch or whatever. Like, I always imagine a little glowing ball like that, a little ball of energy that's just passing from one person to another. And that is, as it were, the inner, the obverse of what people are hearing 
in this conversation. The obverse of that is that little ball of energy that you and JF and I have been passing around to one another, like having this sort of like the shiver, this energetic experience that's intersubjective. It's not necessarily a solipsistic thing, but that little bouncing ball of energy pertains to this moment right now. Something that's not necessarily like locked away in an individual skull, but the moment this is over, it's over and I can listen to the recording, that will give me something like a worm casting or a fossilized trace or like a footprint in snow, but it's not the same thing as the actual action of stepping in the snow. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, but we could talk about the event or the virtual too there, that that's what remains, yeah. that's what exceeds the situation. Like in a way, I've always thought that, you know how each period of your life has a kind of feeling attached to it, right? And you remember, oh, at the time I was living in that town and that was going on and that time had that feeling, that mood. But of course, when you were actually in that time, you were not aware of that mood. You were having all kinds of moods you, you have in the day to day. But when you're out of it, all of a sudden you can kind of see what was going on there. That's what I would call like with Deleuze, the virtual or that bouncing ball for that matter. But you know, another example we could have used to, to illustrate this idea of the bouncing ball, Phil, would be the bouncing ball that Pauline Oliveros has thrown us through her work, uh, through her writings and by example. So I guess we could end with a question for Carrie, which would be something like, what has Pauline Oliveros given you in your own life, in your own evolution? What, why do you feel drawn to this particular artist? or meditator? What is it that draws you to her? There's a number of things. The first thing that comes to me is just that she lived her whole life this way with like this kind of attention. And that just extended so far beyond her professional life, her musical life. And she made a job out of it. And I find that remarkable. There's just this tendency, I think, for many people to separate art from life or even work from play. And she troubled and played with those boundaries so much. I mean, I find it very encouraging that such a thing is possible because <laughs> I also find that um, very challenging. And to be able to basically study it and get a PhD for it, I feel like I definitely got away with something for sure. <laughs> Because, you know, you're learning things about the way you want to live your life, not just, you know, studying musical compositional style. Has it affected your musical practice? I would say my attentional practice. And it's not just Pauline Oliveros, it's the kind of bodywork stuff I've done on my own. Awareness of my own body in space and the signals coming from it, I am just way, it's like my, in musical language, like my ears have gotten better. Like I can listen better. I can hear better. Like my body doesn't have to scream signals at me for me to hear it. Or like my frequency range has opened up. But I would say I wouldn't want to like limit it to the musical. It's bigger than that. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.